Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everybody. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 26, 2023. All right, Lee, I'm going to kind of kick it off here with an article from Deep Instinct. And they had a blog uh, titled Powerful JavaScript Dropper Pend OS distributes Bumblebee and Iced ID malware. This is an, a kind of an interesting find, and I'll kind of go over the background here. So it's basically a JavaScript dropper that's delivering the Bumblebee and Iced ID, uh, but they're switching the TTPs that they've used in the past. They were heavily PowerShell specific, um, and you know it was a technique that we've seen a lot of, and this is probably why they switched because uh, defenders are probably getting smarter and better. Uh, but, you know, when you get like a small ISO or zip or some kind of container file that has a shortcut or an LNK file, and within that shortcut actually has execution to run PowerShell and the commands associated to then pull down the payload. Uh, I guess that's not getting as effective or whatnot. So this technique has actually changed. Um, but what the JavaScript basically does, it makes two web calls. Uh, one is really just for backup in case the first one doesn't work. And then it executes the payload uh, with the run DLL because it's really a DLL uh, file it's pulling down. So looking through all the information, you know, they they kind of talk through the function. They kind of talk through um, kind of the, the bits and pieces. Like they, you know, a lot of uh, deep dives uh, usually do on malware. But it's not often we talk about network detections uh, specifically. But they had a really good um, payload screenshot of kind of what that looks like. And one, it just really stood out to me because, you know, they highlighted as well, the, the user agent they use is pinned OS. And I'm assuming that's why they named the malware that. Um, but looking at the function, it doesn't have to be that user agent. Uh, it, any user agent can be provided to the function that does all these calls. So that is subject to change. But it's good to point out because it's not really using a user agent that really blends in well. And if you ever look at user agents in general, if you have that data, sometimes you can find some really interesting things going on um, by user agent fingerprints or just really rare user agents flying around your network. Um, but if you're able to kind of, you know, look at that, that's something you can dive into the data with. Um, but also it's always good, you know, if you run IDS and snort and things, um, looking at, the payload there and the header data um, they had the field called content disposition and the value is an attachment and then it has a file name which is a dll so you already know you're getting an uh, abnormal file from the web um, and then if you have deeper inspection especially using snort signatures you can see there's they don't even encrypt the file or do anything to obfuscate the file um, it's just kind of raw so you see the nz header which is common um, flag for executables and you can even go off the strings that usually show up in executables um, which is this program cannot be run in DOS mode uh, so there's different ways I think to identify at least the payload drop 
Um, and you know, when we talk about the two web calls I mentioned earlier, one for backup of the first fails, especially if you see the same user agent being redundant in a short period of time, um, it's not the foolproof because of the first one successful. I don't think the second one calls, but it's another type of behavior. You could say, Hey, I see a weird user agent being called twice back to back. Um, something else to consider. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting read to see how, you know, attackers change techniques because they've been using this for a really long time. I don't know how long it's been, but I want to say at least the past year. And, you know, the call to why we like to hunt for these behaviors is it's a big deal they're changing behaviors and we can tweak what we do now, but the previous behaviors existed for quite some time and was shared amongst a lot of actors and adversaries. So it's still an effective behavior to still be looking for as well. So... Uh, I think those are like my key notes that I want to touch on this one. What did you think? So, Polly, I am very glad you brought up this article um, because not only did I post about it last week because this was something that I found fascinating as well, but it's actually something that I've researched recently. The biggest question was, how can you find or correlate the execution of an LNK file? Because if you're using a shortcut or if you double click a shortcut and you actually look at your logs, you might not see, uh, or you shouldn't see, the name of the file in the command line arguments. Um, and simply because the way it works is all it's designed to do is execute something, right? Whether it be command.exe, PowerShell. Um, but the idea that, excuse me, something is getting executed can lead you to a event code 4688 or a sysmon ID 1, um, which is the process create event codes. Um, now, once you have that, and once you find your activity, um, the next step is, how do I link that um, with my shortcut file? Well, I was actually asked to tackle this problem um, by actually one of our customers, um, and because they were they were seeing the same things I did. I went in, uh, in the lab, I created my shortcut file, clicked it, and I all I kept seeing was the process created. I saw the command line arguments that I went wrong, um, but I couldn't find um, the file name itself. So I had to do some digging. Um, if we look, uh, and I used my trusty reference, the ultimate windows security guide. Um, I think it's by Randy Franklin, pretty much like our bot or my Bible anyways. Um, but what I did was I looked for any event code that I could use. And then I was, I came across four, six, five, six, which we usually ignore because it's like really, uh, really noisy. Um, and 4663 is in there as well. Um, now, what 46 and 56 and 4663, sorry, I keep throwing these numbers at you, um, but what they look for is access to an object. Um, now, 4656 is the, hey, I want access to this object. 4663 is basically telling you that it was successful um, in finding that um, or getting that, gaining that access. Um, so, you know, trying to put my brain together, trying to get into that threat hunter mode of how can I correlate these now? Well, Splunk, uh, if you're familiar with it, and if you're not, I apologize because this is probably a very high level um, explanation, but they have a transform command that is called transaction. What that allows you to do is I can look for, I can define a transaction or basically two event codes that I'm seeing this is the starting point and this is the ending point. So my starts with is event code 4656 
And then my uh, ends with event code is 4688. Now, what that allows me to do is build one event. Um, and I'll, by using that 4656 and focusing on my LNK file um, or my shortcut, I can find that first. And then the second event code that ends with is the 4688. So I can say that these were related because I saw the LNK file be accessed or actually get requested access. And then a process was created. Now, you have to mess with how how long a time you're looking at. Is it the same um, computer? Is it the same user? Is a short time frame, et cetera? Because you still want to um, narrow down your hunt to something like that, where the higher fidelity is because you know that it was a short amount of time versus over a year, which could really return any results. Um, but I, I really did like this article. Um, I really liked initial access. Um, and it was a really, really fun experience to try and recreate this in our lab um, and then actually find the data because that, I will tell you what, holy, that that shortcut file was killing me. <laughs> I've looked at that too. And I remember you and you came up with that solution. Um, and it was pretty cool just to see it all play out the way it did. So very cool. Um, yeah. Is that all you got on that one specifically? Yeah. Really good insight. After we're done with 30 minutes of me just talking, but <laughs> no, that, it was a really good article. I really enjoyed it. So what do you got? So my first article uh, is actually something uh, pretty interesting to, well, to me as well. And the threat actors uh, have found a way to um, deliver or send malware directly to an employee's inboxes using Microsoft Teams. Um, now, this was um, done by the JumpSex Red Team. Um, and you could, of course, find the link below, um, or we'll provide that with you. But basically, they were trying to figure out um, how, you know, with, with the security capabilities that are going on um, with you know, traditional payloads, like I can't email anyone at EXE anymore, just blank. Office macros are being cracked down on. Um, and, you know, as our technology increases um, and gets better, threat actors have to find more novel ways of getting malware to us. Um, and so what they did was they were looking at Microsoft Teams. And one of the big things that they looked at was um, the use and abuse of external tenants. Um, which, in, in a nutshell, it allows organizations um, or different organizations, if they're using Microsoft Teams, to contact each other using Microsoft Teams. So as long as you have a username or an email uh, or whatever credentials you need to access it, um, you can. Um, so if your your buddy's working in a different organization, um, you could just hit them up, right? Um, now, there are some limited capabilities with it. Uh, you can't share files. You can't, um, and they actually, in the article, they show the screenshots of the buttons that you can't use. They're, you know, whenever you're a guest somewhere, there's a lot of stuff that you can't do. Um, but what they found was that 91% of the Fortune 100 um, companies are actually using the default configuration um, of Microsoft Teams. And watch that does it allows users from outside the organization to reach out to their staff members so that whole idea of 
I, you know, you work in company ABC, I work at company XYZ, and we can talk to each other. That's built in by default, um, the default configuration, which is kind of, um, I guess, alarming in the first place. Like, why would you, um, that just doesn't seem right or sit well with me. Um, but it's there and it's being abused. So what they did um, was they can't share, sorry, as a guest, you can't share a file with someone. Um, so they're figuring out, like, how can we do this? And they used um, a IDOR technique. And at this point, I had to do some research because I had no idea what that meant. I'm not a red teamer. Uh, yeah, I dabbled, but this is was beyond me. So, of course, I asked ChatGPT. Um, and I found out that it stands for an insecure direct object reference. Um, and I hope that stands true because it did it from chat. Um, but basically, it explained to me is that they're finding a way to um, modify the post of um, of their communication. So they, or sorry, they exploited, uh, or the vulnerability sat within the post and the insecure object. So what they did was they changed their post request to look like it was coming from the recipient or the internal entity. Um, and by modifying that, they were able to send the file and get it into SharePoint, um, and then it would appear uh, in the target inbox as a file and not a link. Um, now, this was pretty crazy to me um, because, you know, the big things that come to my mind are, um, you know, like Apple recently, uh, or I guess over the past couple of years as well with their slew of, no click vulnerabilities and exploitation. Like this kind of sounded like that, that, you know, all you have to do is communicate with someone. And if I can do that by default, if I can find out who you are on LinkedIn and find out you're using Teams and reach out to you and you're using the default configuration, um, and all I do is get your, uh, or have to modify my post and I know how, it, you know, how it's set up, then I could just really scan that. And I could, I, I could be wrong here, so I, I'm going to say potentially scan organizations to see if they have this uh, or signs or markers that they're using the default configuration um, and just start blasting email or malware through Teams um, to have it delivered to their inbox. Now, granted, from there, it's like a little uh, more interesting, right? It's kind of you deliver it and it's sitting there. What's the um, recipient going to do with it? Are they actually going to click it? And you kind of, oh, but that kind of defeat, like you don't even have to worry about a phishing email at that point because you already you, bypass a whole layer of controls, right? Yeah. Uh, it, blow, it blows my mind. And this was amazing to me. Um, one of the, the problem that it saw or not problem that I saw, problem that it created, how they managed to <laughs> not exploit the vulnerability was simple, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of it, but it seems like they were, I think they even mentioned it took them 10 minutes. So, I mean, the fact that they did that that quick was one shows their creativity, um, and two, it, it, it's just worse. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, it was cool to kind of see, um, like someone trying to leverage built-in capabilities of teams already, and you know they obviously put some controls in place, but without protecting that specific ID that's associated with that tenant, so you can get asset basically dropped to that SharePoint. That's the back side of Teams. Um, it's pretty interesting they can pull it off. The one thing that stood out to me, though, was they were saying, you know, 
um, one of the things that's still consistent that every user sees when they see a file drop that way is they still see it flagged as external. But, you know, they mentioned, and we know from experience that external tagging doesn't really prevent people from clicking. Uh, it might make some people, you know, take a second thought. Uh, but they also mentioned that, you know, the, the best way to enable this is to stand up your own um, tenant with a, a, a similar like domain, right? So kind of like what you see, um, like typo squatting, for instance, except for you have like a tenant kind of name that way. So even if someone were to get that, um, say, you know, message or file through Teams, it might say external, but it looks like it's from somebody they may already know because you obviously you can set up the same names and users and your tenant is someone else. Um, so you can make the fish kind of really more believable, um, which was interesting. And that kind of brings me to the one thing it made me think about too is you can put blocks on some of the external communications or just allow certain external communications as far as what tenants you communicate with. And it's a great use case for using DNS Twister. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with DNS Twister, you know, it basically takes the common techniques that uh, adversaries use to come up or generate domains that they could buy to kind of trick you when it comes to phishing and social engineering and things like that. Uh, you basically provide the domain you want to um, typo squat. Uh, in and it produces a whole list and it will even tell you if there's domains already registered. So from a security practitioner, you can kind of see, oh, someone already owns something that looks just like our for domain. Maybe we should care about that. And I think it even tells you if there are MX records associated. So what that means is there's a DNS log that says you can send email to that domain, which makes it more suspicious when it comes to phishing. Uh, I feel like you can use that technique to help from generic phishing um, in this case as well. Uh, if we're able to get like that pre-compiled list and just put blocks in place just right out of the gate. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very innovative way to uh, kind of a, um, attack kind of the the obfuscated unknown things behind the scenes uh, that are just kind of exposed naturally. Yeah, yeah. Little wild, little worrisome. Right. What'd you got for us? So yeah, this next one, um, I thought was really interesting. Um, so it was from, uh, I, I saw it through the HackRead um, site, and it's titled U.S. Military Personnel Targeted by Unsolicited, Unsolicited Smartwatches Linked to Data Breaches. Um, and basically, in this type of attack, smartwatches were sent to specific military personnel for free, and when they were connected and activated, they already contain malware and could access the network as well as they um, they can access any of the information the person has on their phone and potentially the camera and microphone um, once, you know, they kind of link and set all that up. And, you know, it's interesting to me because obviously it's a very targeted attack. Um, so, and... It puts a whole nother uh, skew on supply chain in my head. That's what I thought of initially with supply chain. It was like, oh, someone got like, you know, devices that were compromised or whatever. And it's like, no, people were actually sending devices for free. So it wasn't something like you were tricked into like you own the software and then there was something that happened with the distribution of it or you bought hardware and at some point in time someone put, you know, chips or things inside. You had to worry about that. They were just sending things. So it's almost like a supply chain attack on like social engineering. 
uh -huh, in a way. Uh, but uh, I would, looking at the type of attack and the type of access and what there is to gain, it really does speak nation state to me. Um, I always kind of like to, I don't like to say who it might be um, all the time, but I like to try to figure out what makes the most sense as far as those actor buckets. Because um, one, you know, the target itself is military. And then two, there's not really much money to be made. Now, granted, you could get access to banking information and things like that from phones, but there's the exception, and that is there's a lot of R&D and costs to get smartwatches and make sure they're loaded with malware and all those things beforehand that a lot of, like, uh, you know, cybercrime doesn't go through those hurdles. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an interesting uh, anecdote that I, I want to put out there. And then... And then it's it's also interesting to me, too, because, I you know, being previous military, you know, we've heard about hey, yeah, there's been data breaches and some of your data may be out there, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people kind of pass it off. as like, yeah, people already have our data, you know, address, things like that. Um, now, granted, I know that it's very easy to access if you know who a person is, probably what residence they own, so you can figure out where to mail things. But this is why even just um, basic data that, you know, gets throwing out data breaches that, you know, might not fall into the category of social security number and credit cards and things like that. Information can still be utilized, um, to help set up something kind of like this. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't take all those things in passing. Just know that if you kind of see where basic information yours is exposed or available, um, you should be more cognizant when things that seem too good to be true or you're getting things free. Uh, so it's just kind of a shame that you know, a lot of those, those people kind of fell fell for this or didn't bring it up but it's good that they caught it and it's kind of an interesting um thing that kind of came to the surface and that now is obviously on people's top of mind so what do you think so this brought back like flashbacks so first of all we know um that then you're right there's certain threat actors that target certain things right if they're targeting military, it's, they're looking for like intel. Mm -hmm. If they're hot, if they're looking for proprietary information, they're probably trying to um, make a cheaper product. Um, some they should stay steal money because that's what they're trying to do. Um, but this is if you're right with that threat actor, you probably can dial it in because there's one threat actor that always attempts to look at our military and figure things out, uh, which is. Incredible because we have people all over the world, and I can't remember the name. And I forget what the wash name was, but do you remember whenever? And I can't remember. I remember I was in Afghanistan at the time, but a uh, or was I? Uh, I can't remember. Either way, a like Garmin competitor had a data breach. Or, or either data breach or they released a map of all their activity. Oh, you're talking about the, uh, I think you're like Fitbit watches. Yeah. And the geolocation data was available, so they were able to see because a lot of military personnel wanted to wear Fitbits to um, basically track their workouts and things. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, they were seeing people in countries that, hey, who's this? Why are they? Life is activity, yeah. Right, yeah. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, geez, like, we, you know, it was, it was genuine, you know, the intent wasn't there to compromise, but the fact they were like, 
we're going to release all our users' data out there just to show where they're at and then to look back at the map and say, oh, this is actually kind of sensitive. Um, kind of brings up that as well as... Um, oh, is Soupy for the sake? Hold on a second. Strava, thank you, thank you. The Strava uh, heat map. Yes, there was Ancha, um, here's military uh, Strava fitness tracker that um, that they used, <laughs> and they released that. Um, you know, once again, seemed like good intentions. Didn't seem like they had an issue, you know, or were even thinking along this lines. But they released uh, the heat map of their user activity, and that that led to some serious issues for the military where, you know, hey, we're not wearing smartwatches anymore. Of course, there's a crackdown. Uh, and there are also um, two other stories. Um, buckshot, buckshot, buckshot Yankee. Um, I don't know if you remember that. Um, yep. I think it was 2008. Um, a military com uh, computer was... Um, compromised by a USD flash drive and that caused like huge issues um some of which we probably won't ever find out until those documents are uh, declassified um but once again it just goes to show that if you guess if you leave something someone's probably going to plug it in or someone's going to use it right it's just that human nature um not just of the military right it, uh, it's probably just us being on the military because we've been there um but, you know, like, it's, it's still a credible way to use things or a credible way to exploit people. Um, and I don't know if you remember as well the story that we got um, that you couldn't go to the bazaar anymore because some guy was, um, he went out and purchased an external hard drive, plugged it in, and it didn't work, but he heard this, like, little pop or something. And he so he was like, oh, you know, something blew, you know, something blew in my external hard drive and he took it apart and he found like a pound or two of C4 that the idea was to, you know, blow up while he plugged it in, which thankfully didn't work. Um, but you wonder like, you know, when, whatever the military is getting targeted, what's the end? Uh, and yeah. this, this just took me back. Um, and I, but I will say the good thing is that you can tell how long a data or how long, uh, information has been reached or how long ago it was because if you ever get like a letter that says like private poly or private arc and all you're like well yeah <laughs> that was years ago <laughs> this is you know that's kind of just the you know I guess the humorous way to date the uh, the information that they have but yeah this was wild um, the fact that they're targeting military again um, pretty crazy pretty crazy yeah, and they're doing it with technology that people want. There's high demand for that. So. Absolutely. Who wouldn't want a free smartwatch? Yeah. Cool. So what do you got now? Um, so I uh, found this uh, report by Threatmon, um, and I'm probably going to do them a disservice because uh, I recently found them as a resource. Um, this is more of a resource-driven article, I guess. Um, they produce some really good content. Um, so yeah, if you want to follow them, go ahead, but they're, yeah, the company, company name is Threatmon, and the article or the report they put out was called Technical Analysis of an RDP Credential Stealer, Uncovering Malware Targeting RDP Credentials with API Hooking. So, um, 
the level of sophistication behind this is like a little bit beyond me. Not because, uh, and honestly, when it comes to coding or, um, you know, building API hooking, you know, that's it, kind of above my head because I've never really been a programmer. Um, I, I'm more of a log junkie, right? If I can find it in the log, I can tell you what happened. Um, or at least for the most part, what happened. I love dynamic analysis. Um, I kind of don't know what static and or looking at static analysis kind of blows my mind. Uh, I know we have some team members at Cyborg that that's their bread and butter, um, which drives me nuts because I don't understand it at all. Um, but, um, but, you know, I love Steelers. I love to see how these things work. Um, recent, you know, a while back, I got out of a keylogger, which was my dream. Cause it was like, how, how does this work? You know, before cybersecurity was like, Hey, I can put some on your computer that can track your keystroke. And I was always like, how finally now I can old one. I can figure it out. Um, but this way they're using, um, they're trying to steal RDP credentials. Um, and of course the drive is that a lot of people are working from home. So this makes this as a very viable, um, way to get stolen credentials, right? Because a lot of people are using it um, just due to um, the nature of the world and economy right now. Um, but what they do is like high priority stuff is usually like servers you probably have to RDP to. Absolutely, right? You're not just, um, you know, you're not just accessing your computer RDP, which I mean, you possibly could, but think about like the domain administrators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're going to the high value stuff, like you said. Um, but they use DLL, um, or they inject DLL. Um, they use, uh, or sorry, scratch that. Um, they drop a DLL um, that creates process injection. They do, uh, yeah, they do DLL library or D dynamic link library injection, um, and just to get your connections. And the beautiful thing is, whatever they tested it, and they have this all in the report. It actually just pushed to a um, a text file. So whenever I normally hear like credentials or think of like pass the hash attacks, uh, like and then or anytime you hear meme cats, I'm always like, okay, well, how how far is this going to get you? You know, what I mean, I understand the idea of getting a hash and being able to use that to authenticate. Um, so that was my first theory was that they were just getting that type of their level of information. But the idea is that they're actually getting plain text which I find, uh, and I'm sure threat actors find as well, much more usable because if you have the plain text, um, where else are they using those credentials, right? If it is like their domain admin. Uh, yeah, for all the password reuse stuff. Yeah, like you could go anywhere. Um, if it's personal, if it's, you know, just work-related, either way. Um, but they did a really good job of breaking it down. They provided the static analysis. Um, you know, they got screenshots galore. Um, and for those threat hunters out there that are uh, miter tech um, junkies like me, um, looking at the report, they used process injection, which was T1055, uh, DLL injection, which was technique 1055.001, um, threat execution hijacking, which is T1055.003, um, which are all sub-techniques of process injection, just uh, a little more specific way of doing it. Um, they had process discovery in there too, so they did, uh, which is technique 1057. Uh, and input capture credential API hooking, 
which was T1056.004. Um, but once again, just a really good report on uh, a stealer just grabbing information, um, which, of course, if you can get that level of information with you know, plain text credentials, you could possibly really ruin that organization. So what were your thoughts then? So, yeah, no, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, a good target as far as what credentials you'd want to go after, um, because a lot of times, too, some organizations that want to protect um, higher value targets, they usually don't have the same credentials you'd use for like you as a user. You might have like a specific administrative account you only use for those or an account dedicated for those. Um, so you're actually going after higher profile credentials in general, typically. So I thought that was a good approach for them. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting and kind of got me thinking was, you know, they're dropping something like, how can I detect or what data would I care about? And they're dropping the the text file with the credentials in the, the public music folder. And this might sound really stupid, um, but, you know, there are common directories that exist in Windows. There's the pictures folder, there's the music folder, and there's ones, and they're like dedicated to specific um, type of media. And you know, I think about, you know, sysmod configurations for, you know, you can't monitor every single file being created. Well, in those directories, you can probably say if there's a file created and it's not a media file, um, then it might be interesting. And in this case, there's a text file being dropped in the music directory, a directory that contain music as, you know, the name, you know, might be worth looking at. And it got me thinking even more where I have seen instances or read reports where there's insider threats trying to exfil data and they commonly use directories like that because it's, you know, kind of, it's already there and it's something no one ever uses or looks at. And they dump a bunch of different types of data that doesn't match the purpose of those directories. Um, so obviously, yeah, you got some configuration to set up the proper logging for that. Um, but might be a valuable source that shouldn't be noisy, right? As far as like, I imagine you shouldn't collect a lot of data that way. It's just something that can run and look for those things. Um, so that was like the way I thought about, well, that'd be an interesting way to kind of catch this. Um, you wouldn't know it's tied to this directly, but I'm sure if you were to look at the file, <laughs> you get a pretty good idea what's going on, um, especially because everything's in plain text. Um, so, you know, that kind of got me thinking about that approach um, as far as, yeah, looking for just not normal expected uses of the file structure and file types. Oh yeah. If there's anything that's right behind top or has Tommy is that C users public directory is a hotspot. Though <laughs> so it is the app data local temp directory. Um, and if you see processes like executing from, uh, you know, SysWile 64, that's probably like a big red flag, especially in a 32-bit system. Um, but yeah, no, like directories are pretty wild and pretty, uh, pretty really important whenever you think about, you know, like you said, what files in it, what's the purpose, or do we even use that? Right. So how are you going to close this up? Yeah, so the, the next one is kind of funny based on some of the things we've talked about. Um, it is uh, research from Checkpoint. And it's called Beyond the Horizon, Traveling the World on Camaro Dragon's USB flash drives. And basically, there was a European healthcare institution that was hit by Chinese espionage um, threat actor that was using USB to propagate malware um, dubbed Wisp Writer. 
Um, and then basically what had happened is that the target set for this malware was obviously more Asian specific, but the employee went to a conference in Asia from this European healthcare and he shared his presentation with the other attendees there on a USB drive that he brought. And by letting them use his USB, one of the people that was an attendee had this malware on there um, because they're from that region that's being targeted. And then it natively installed itself onto his USB. So then he brought it back home and used the USB at work and then spread the infection that way. Um, so it was able to propagate. Which, you know, in this article, they kind of talk about different things. One of the things I thought was really interesting is there's a heavy use of DLL sideloading. Um going on and they actually were targeting things from um ea games and riot uh who's you know the the producer of league of legends which is another really popular game and i only bring those up because it's really interesting when you see weird executables that it can be tied to something like that and then dll drops in the same directory in similar times so obviously i think good file types to monitor for creation or drops of dll's and executables but um it's interesting because it's not like someone need like it's so common now where people just look at any software that's been developed where there might be a vulnerability for DLL sideloading and they just bring it with them. Um, and it's just uh, it's crazy to think that there's just all this legitimate software and it's just so easy to bypass protections because the software is technically legitimate. It's the DLL that loads this not. So they they were leveraging a lot of that. Um, same thing with some Symantec, some old Symantec stuff. Um, so there's basically a lot of that going on which i thought was you know interesting and something worth looking at as far as you see executables to programs that you don't use in your environment like they use uh vivaldi was a one and that's a web browser it's not a common web browser in a lot of places um so just seeing that the presence of that it it'd be good to think about when you see executables that are kind of rare look for dll's in the same directory um and especially creation timestamps or modified timestamps relatively the same to that executable too, because uh, they're likely linked. And if it's something that you might be bad, um, you might be able to kind of suss some of these things out. So um, those are some things that stood out. The other thing that really stood out that we've seen a lot, you know, assuming you sandbox malware, is it likes to do for its anti-analysis uh, a recursive let's execute myself a hundred times kind of thing. Um, kind of to exhaust the sandbox's resources for monitoring whatever that is they're going to do. And um, so it's always something interesting to look at if you see where the same process is run a ton of times on the same host within a short period of time. That could be the anti-analysis technique where you know it'll still execute just fine on the system, but it is a kind of a big red flag um, a lot of times when you see that kind of activity. Um and the other thing that I thought was really interesting, they were talking about the older version of this, I believe, um, because they've obviously been tracking this for a while and they've seen how they've kind of updated it and things like that. But I guess the original target for the older version um, at that time, well, I guess it's not so old. It's still back in like 2022. And But it um, originated in my, my, I'm going to butcher the name because I'm terrible with names, but Myanmar which I'm assuming is in Asia, and they're tracking virus total updates or submissions. And they were seeing that over time, it's worked its way into Russia. Geographically close, right, to Asia, or I guess in Asia, depending on how you look at it. Um, 
but it's kind of interesting when you talk about something that that gets spread and perforates proliferates through USBs, like some physical exchange and some interaction. It's kind of how you'd expect the spread to occur if it was a USB driven type malware. Um, so that was kind of interesting, kind of to see that actually occurring that way. And then obviously the conference thing. I mean, that was an interesting tie. How yeah, you bring a bunch of people together. Anything that can happen there is a great place to then kick things back out in the world. So, you know, it should be, you know, people should be cognizant of conferences. And then also just in general, it's really good to pay attention to um, how you monitor for USB drives. I know a lot of people try to put in protections or limit USB use and things like that, which is good um, if you have the means to do so. But at least collect data on it. Um, because sometimes I've, I've been in investigations where something's tied to a USB and you kind of hit that point where you can see everything you know that you you know is bad, but you can't, you're like missing that one nugget because you're like, God, there's just something that I'm missing to see how this all comes together. And in that case, it was USB data. We didn't either have it or didn't link it together correctly. But once we realized that was the case, it made so much more sense and it kind of helped with investigations. And then also kind of looking at where these devices being used and passed around, um, kind of fingerprint them and things too which is interesting so um yeah i was just wondering uh there's a lot of information in here and a lot of technical dives so i was wondering what some of the things that stood out to you well first thing um i realized i lied earlier this is the article that i posted about last week not the other oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> just want to call that out um but no the like you said um the fact that it is spread throughout the world, uh, and that's how they traced it, I thought was extremely interesting. Uh, thinking back to the worm, you know, the the worms, and uh, what like thing about like Stuxnet, um, yeah, that uh, this might not be on the same scale, but that's the first thing that came to my mind was that you know it was a very targeted piece of malware, right? It was a very targeted campaign. And they had their targets. They chose very carefully what they were going to do with it. And then next thing you know, they look at the big picture and they're like, oh my gosh, like, that's why. Like, it's nothing that we even imagined. Um, yeah, it was like too easy. Right. Like, like, I mean, good good for them maybe. Or maybe if they were trying to, you know, just operate quietly, um, that that was probably maybe a problem for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, either way, it's crazy to see the replication between, um, but through, um, three USB devices, right? Um, I, I believe now once again for those, um, lighter tag frameworks, if you're uh, if you got your bingo card out, um, that is replication through removable media, which is T1091. Um, you got that? You know, yell bingo. But, um, yeah, of course, then, you know, being the law junkie that I am is, you know, where can we find this? What Windows event IDs capture this activity? Um, and once again, another plug for Randy Franklin, um, because that's the, the thing I Googled. USB, you know, log information, and it's Windows Security Event Log ID 6416. Um, and I gave an example of it, and the title is, A New External Device Was Recognized by the System. Um, now, depending on which environment you're in, uh, how your environments operate, that could get really noisy really quickly. Um, you know, whatever your business processes are, 
um, which caused, you know, of course, caused concern for whatever tool you're using to ingest. Um, but it's there, right? Also, um, I thought about looking at anything. Uh, if I did have to hunt for this and try and find anything that references something that is, uh, I guess, external, you know, I would think about, is it, does this show up as a different drive other than C, right? If you're looking for processes being created, uh, yeah, um, yeah. you just say, well, not looking for the C drive. Maybe that's a good way to start. Now, once again, if you're collecting those logs and you have that information in your logs, you should see it. Um, but, you know, once again, it's got to deal with what visibility you have. Um, so if you're not ingesting 64 or 16, um, which is a good possibility because this is the first time I've heard of it. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, the log guru. Uh, but, you know, if you look for process creation, look for anything other than C or files being created other than C, um, you might be able to find the stuff. Yeah, I do like that um, process cre create kind of events from a non-C direct directory. So I think it's a great way to kind of just see, well, because most of the time people don't run programs from external drives. They usually are either moved over or they just run locally. So that kind of gives you a good insight from an execution standpoint that I think is good to pay attention to for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I guess I am curious, I can't confirm it right now, but if you do create a file from the USB, I wonder if the like parent image or the image would be, or is it like, could you see the parent file directory? Yeah, I don't know if Explorer is the one that does the creation or not, because you know, it's right. kind of the drive, but yeah, it's something that would be worth trying to generate the data for. So um, I plan on seeing two new hunt packages from you then, I guess? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no, great article. Uh, I've really enjoyed seeing, not only reading again, um, but seeing it someone else's perspective, right? I always read these and I think, you know, I always figure out how I think about it, but then hearing, hearing someone else from the same uh, track, but different aspects, we're uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's always good finds. So I think that kind of concludes at least our top five things. Um, I wanted to quickly mention that we do have a 30-minute webinar uh, this Wednesday, June 28th from 12 to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's called Threat Hunting, Shifting Gears and Query Tuning. It's where I'll actually go over kind of the my tricks of the trade and an approach to how I kind of dial in threat hunts um, and how I think about them as well. I'll show and I'll try to do some live demo stuff. Uh, so hopefully, you know, demo gods are good on Wednesday and we'll see how that works out. Um, and then our next live interactive podcast is July 20th um, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, we'll have, you know, our themed cocktail there to kind of hang out, socialize, talk on some topics, bring some things to the table. Um, it's usually a good time. We always love the interaction for the people, the folks that show up and the folks that return. Um but with that, I want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. I'm looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 26, 2023. Thanks for coming, everyone, and happy hunting. Happy hunting. 
Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.